Philippians. And I, I will say flip over to Philippians and and I will not say it again. That's it. For the whole study, I'm not, I used it. It's, it's done. That's water under the bridge. If you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will throw one to you. Philippians chapter 1. I don't know who and I don't know how. But at some point, somebody flipped through the pages of Scripture and counted every promise that God made to man. And the number is 3,573. Now, we like promises, especially if they come from God. Because God, we know, cannot lie. We know that His Word always comes to pass. That he always makes good on his promises. And therefore, we love it when we stumble upon or come to a promise that God gives to us. Because we know it, it's going to come to pass. We memorize the promises of God. Many times we commit them to memory. Oftentimes we will put them in decorative form and hang them in placards and, and uh, nice frames and nice settings. And we'll put them on our walls. We will write them upon index cards and post-it notes and place them in strategic areas to remind us of the promises that God is going to fulfill. Often when we converse with other people, it's the promises of God that we give away. We, we love the promises of God. Where the Bible says, My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory. We love to hear that promise. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. Oh, that's so good, Lord. Thank you for your promise. The prophet declared that no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I claim your promise. You know, All things work together for good for those that love God, those that are called according to his purpose. Thank you for your promise, Lord. We love the promises of God. But you know, in all the homes that I've been in and all of the scripture that I've seen posted and pasted in different places, there are certain promises from scripture that I have never seen anywhere. That very rarely do I hear quoted as a word of encouragement is being offered or shared, you know, or whatnot. There are other promises in the Bible that we very rarely ever see. Like, how about John chapter 16, verse 33? Jesus said, in this world, you shall have tribulation. That's just not one that you often see on the wall in someone's bathroom when you're washing your hands with nice smelling soap. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yea, and all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Very rarely do we find ourselves saying, Lord, yes, I claim that promise. Please, Lord, bring it to pass within my life. Or John chapter 15, verse 20, where Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There are some promises that we like. There are others that maybe not so much. Yes, it's true. The Bible is full of promises. But the truth is that we are not, as Christians, as God's people, just promised green pastures and nice pleasures. But we're also promised problems and pain. 
Paul's letter to the church at Philippi tackles the tough topic of dealing with difficulties in the Christian life. And in dealing with this topic, Paul essentially does two things. He both answers a question and also makes a radical claim. The question that Paul answers on the pages of this epistle is, what part do problems play within the Christian life? And the claim that Paul makes as we go through these pages is that even in the midst of most tragic circumstances, it is possible to experience joy. Joy that is real and joy that is full. What problems does pain play in the Christian life. And Paul tells us that no matter what those problems or that pain might be, it is possible in Christ Jesus to experience fullness of joy in the midst of them. The authority behind Paul's words as we go through this letter is that as he is writing these things, he himself is in the midst of a very great trial, a period of tribulation within his own life. He writes this letter from a prison cell. He's facing the potential of being executed by the sword of Rome. And yet, as he sits in prison and as he writes this epistle, he's able to communicate all of the good things that are coming from the trial that he's facing. And, ironically enough, this letter that was penned from a prison is known by theologians and scholars as the epistle of joy. He uses the word joy or rejoicing 19 times in this letter. 19 times he says joy or rejoice that we have in Christ. Now listen, in the kingdom of men, in the systems of this world, you often hear about the pursuit of happiness. And oftentimes in the kingdoms of men, that's what it is. It's a pursuit of happiness. And the problem with happiness is that happiness is hinged upon or based upon the circumstances that we're in. You know, many of us, we are at this very season of of life uh, hoping or awaiting a tax return. That we've overpaid and we're going to receive a refund. But on our way to the bank to cash the check, oftentimes what can happen, you get a flat tire or the check engine light turns on and the $600 refund is now in the shadows of a $1,200 car repair. And the day that started out with extreme bliss and happiness now ends in despair and disruption because the circumstance that brought us happiness was interrupted by something else. And that's the problem with happiness is that it's completely dependent upon circumstance. Joy, on the other hand, has nothing to do with circumstances at all. Joy comes from the other thing that is mentioned over and over again in Philippians. In fact, over 40 times, Jesus Christ. Joy comes from Christ. And the kingdom of men says you have the right to the pursuit of happiness. But the kingdom of God says that you are entitled to the gift of joy that is not based upon the circumstances that you're in, but rather it's based upon the fact that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, and He is working all things together for good in your life, both the things that hurt and the things that don't. The history of the church of Philippi, the church was founded, of course, by the Apostle Paul. 
It was on his second missionary journey. The story is given to us in the 16th chapter of Acts. Paul had begun his missionary work in the region of Asia Minor, what we would call modern-day Turkey. And he established the churches of Galatia and the churches you know, in and around Ephesus, all working his way throughout that continent. And as they had made the full gamut and they had done their work there, the Bible tells us that they had a desire to move into Asia Major, if you would. They wanted to go east with the gospel, but it says that the Holy Spirit forbade them. At that point, they essayed or endeavored to move to the northwest to go up towards that region of Gomer and towards the Black Sea. But it says that there also the Spirit put a closed door in their path and they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in that region. But then as they were praying and asking the Lord, what is it that we're to do? At night, the Apostle Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. Across the Aegean Sea from where they were, uh, uh, you know, in that Asia Minor continent. And the man from Macedonia in Paul's vision was saying, come over here and help us. And so Paul said, we figured that that was the Spirit of God leading, directing us to go that way. And so we went to Troas. And sure enough, just as they come into port, there's a ship leaving for Macedonia. And so they get on the ship, and the Bible says that they had a straight course. They got across the Aegean Sea in one day, a trip that normally could take four or five days because of currents and winds and all the rest. And God was leading, directing their path. And no doubt as they landed there at the port in Philippi, the first city that Paul visited on the continent of Europe, he was looking for a man from Macedonia. But there was no man from Macedonia. In fact, there weren't enough Jews, which was Paul's custom to find the Jews, there weren't enough Jews to even institute or, or uh, you know, necessitate the presence of a synagogue there in Philippi. And so Paul heard that on the Sabbath there was some Jews that would go down to the river to pray. So Paul, thinking, maybe I'll see this man that I saw in the vision, he goes down to the river, but there's no men. It's just a couple of Jewish women praying there. But Paul, he says, okay, if it's a man saying, come help us, or if it's a few women praying by the river, it's all the same to me. So Paul begins to share. And a woman by the name of Lydia attended to the things which were spoken of Paul, and she believed the word of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says that she was a seller of purple, and she was from Thyatira. So she was a woman of prominence and a woman of wealth. And she, it says, constrained Paul to stay with her. And so the work began in Philippi with a few women down by the river, as Paul the Apostle led a woman named Lydia to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins his work, and he goes about preaching the gospel in the region, the city of Philippi. And we're told that there was a young woman who was demon-possessed. And that she followed the Apostle Paul around. And as he would preach, she would stand in the background and she would say, These men are preaching the way of the Most High God. These men are preaching the way of the Most High God. And the Bible says that Paul was grieved in his spirit or greatly troubled. He understood. He knew what was going on. He realized that God was getting advertising from the devil that this woman was simply mocking and it says that Paul spoke and he cast the demon out of the woman 
And as the demon was cast out of the woman, many people were angered at Paul because they used this woman's demon to soothsay, to, you know, fortune tell and whatnot. And many people lost a lot of money when the demon was cast out of this woman in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so upset were they at the things Paul was doing and what Paul was preaching that they had Paul arrested beaten and imprisoned. And you know the story. Paul with Silas there, bloodied and in the prison, he's there at midnight, all of the other prisoners listening, all of the guards intent on what was taking place within their cell, and Paul and Silas begin to sing. They begin to cough out under muffled voice the words of a hymn singing the songs of Scripture. And it says that as they sang that song, the Lord sent an earthquake. And through that earthquake, all of the chains of all of the prisoners were broken, including Paul and Silas. And no small stir took place as Paul and Silas didn't take that opportunity to hightail it out of the prison, but rather they sat there and waited. And they led the Philippian jailer to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that night when they saw the joy that was experienced by a man who had been beaten, arrested, and imprisoned. The man got saved. Well, they wanted to set Paul free. They found out he was a Roman, and it says that they were filled with fear because he was a Roman citizen which gave him rights to a trial which made it illegal for them to arrest him or beat him without a cause. And once they found out he was a Roman, they wanted him out of the prison. But Paul said, no, 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 you send the officials and have them come and get me themselves. And so they do that and they bring in the officials and the officials say, would you please leave this region now? And Paul says, okay. And so he leaves the prison and he goes back to Lydia and he makes sure that the church there is is set up and that people are okay. And then he leaves the region. He walks from there. And the church at Philippi was begun by the Apostle Paul. A work was established. A church was formed. The gospel was planted within that region. But essentially what the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Philippi as he brought them forth, as he birthed that work, was an example of how to handle trials and suffering within the Christian life. And it stands to reason for us, based upon what happened to Paul while he was in Philippi, the fact that he offended those that had influence and those that had wealth in the region of Philippi, Coupled with, when you take that and couple it with the things that Paul wrote to the church in the letter, you get the idea that Philippi was not an easy place to be a Christian. There was a fair amount of persecution. There was a fair amount of division between those that were saved and those that weren't there in the city. And those that weren't had the ability and took the opportunity to make life difficult for those that were. And that's the setting of the church there as Paul is writing. Now there's a very loose outline to Paul's letter. In chapter 1, after the introduction, which is verses 1 through 11, the rest of the chapter is basically Paul's personal trial 
And he also adds on the good that came from it. So Paul's personal tribulation and the good that came from it. Chapter 2 deals with the transformation that comes from tribulation. Chapter 3 deals with how suffering draws us closer to the Lord and into a deeper experience of His love. And chapter 4 deals with the supernatural contentment that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul uses his own life and his own experience as an example of these things as you work your way through the chapters. So if you look with me at verse 1 in Paul's introduction, the first thing that we notice as Paul begins this letter is the author. It says there in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Paul and Timothy, he says, the servants of Jesus Christ. I love the word that Paul uses to identify himself and to describe his ministry of him and Timothy. He says that we are simply the servants of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this word. It's the word in the Greek, doulos, which means bond slave. It's the lowest order of a servant, but it is a servant by choice. It's someone who is a slave by choice, out of love of his master. And that's the title that Paul chooses to employ as he addresses himself to the church. It's a very humble title, isn't it, for a man who was an apostle? A man who was a prophet? A man who was the pastor of pastors? The founder of churches? One who would pen much of the New Testament, a very humble title indeed for a man of Paul's stature to use in identifying himself to the church. It doesn't carry much authority, does it? Hey, you should listen to the things that I'm going to say because I'm a slave. How many of us, if we received instructions from a slave, would give much credence to it? But yet Paul, knowing who he was, and knowing that they know who he was, was content to address himself and deal with them from the viewpoint or the standpoint of a humble servant. I remember hearing a phrase many years ago that I'll never forget. And listen carefully, maybe you want to write this down and you don't want to forget it. Is that only that which is real can truly afford to be humble. Only that which is real can truly afford to be humble. We, we understand that if we put it in the context of God our Father. I mean, he is as real as real can be. And and look at all that he's done. I mean, when you just consider the very simple elements of creation, we call them simple because they appear to be simple from the finite observation of our stupidity. But the, the, the simplest thing that God creates, if you dig a little bit deeper beyond just the appearance of what you're looking at, you find the most incredible beauty and the most intricate, intense uh, you know, detail to everything that he has made. A, a snowflake just appears to be a falling chunk of ice until you look at it under a microscope and begin to really think about the formation of that and the uniqueness of it and all the rest. And you realize there's nothing simple about this at all. You consider a, a simple cell, the smallest building block of you know, what we are and, and whatnot, and you think, well, there's really not much to that at all until you begin to 
look into it a little bit and you realize how intricate, how detailed, how important every part of it is and how it isn't simple at all, but it's so intricate, it's so, it's so detailed, it's so incredible. And you start to consider, you start to consider the vastness of all that God made. But yet, isn't it interesting that God didn't leave a book somewhere explaining any of that to us? He never says from the sky, he says, hey, I want you to think about all that I can do. Think about the size of the sun and the massive amount of energy that it puts forth. And think about how it got there and what it is. He doesn't do any of that. What he does is he just says, I'll let them figure it out for themselves. You know why? Because he's real. And because he's real, he can afford to be humble. He doesn't have to boast about what he's done. He's left it for us to discover. But he doesn't have to boast about it because he's real. We see the Apostle Paul employing that very principle here in his address to the Philippians. He has no need to address himself as the great Apostle Paul. You ever seen one of those flyers advertising a revival meeting? And you want to see who's presiding over the meeting. And so you look at it and you can barely get to the name of the person because of the length of their title. The apostle, prophet, evangelist, most reverent, right, holy, you know, whatever. And, and then it says their name and you're like, oh, you know. And if you go to the thing, you almost expect that the person's going to float and be wearing a halo. And, you know, they're just going to be all white and covered with light. Listen, if they have to do that, the reason they have to do it is because... They're lacking something, really, and they're hiding behind a title. Paul doesn't feel the need to do that, to be recognized, to put forth his certificates and his endorsements. Paul is an apostle. He's a prophet. Paul's a pastor, and he's carrying with him the very authority of God, and yet he doesn't feel it necessary to bring any of that up when he talks to them. And the very proof that he is the real thing, is in the fact that he doesn't need the recognition. I remember my pastor in Rochester uh, went, went on a mission trip or something, and while he was gone, his wife, um, as pastor's wives do, wanted to bless him, so she had us remodel his entire office, you know. And so new carpet, new paint, you know, the whole thing, new ceiling, really nice, you know, all, all that. And he came back, and I remember that he, he put everything back where he wanted it, but he didn't hang his ordination certificates on the wall. They, they had previously been there behind his desk up on the wall, but he didn't put them back up there. And several months went by, and we were at a prayer meeting in there or something, and one of the guys said, hey, why don't you hang up your, your certificates, you know, so people know that you're not just some uh, quack or something that's, you know, leading a church or whatever. And I'll never forget what he said in response to that. He said, if they don't know that I'm a pastor before they come in here, then it doesn't matter if they see that I am when they do come in here. And, and, and you know, I was a young Christian, so I wasn't really, you know, think, but, but that stayed with me. I remembered that, is that it isn't about what's written about you on a piece of paper or the endorsement that someone gives you when they talk about you. What matters is what they get from you when they come into contact with you and partake of your life. That's what matters. Because the authority of who we are in the person of Christ isn't in our title or our position or our credentials of how long we've been in the faith or what we've done. But rather, it's in the fruit of Christ coming out of our life. The aroma of Christ being understood and perceived by those that are in our presence. That's what carries our authority. And see, when we have that, we don't need a title. We can be a servant and we can be content. 
And you know what? People will look at our lives and they'll realize that there's so much more going on than just service, that the presence of Christ is with us. What about us? What is the evidence of your Christianity to those that know you? Do they know you're a Christian because you carry a Bible? Because you wear a Christian t-shirt? Because of the bumper stickers that are on your car? Because of the phrases that you use when you talk? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Or do they know you're a Christian because they can sense love, sincere love that comes out of your life towards them? Because you're sincerely concerned with the welfare of their estate and how they're doing. Because you're laying down your life and selflessly giving of yourself for them. Because you're not concerned about your reputation or what people think about you, but rather concerned about what the Lord thinks of you and what He's doing within your life. What's the evidence of our Christianity? The greatest thing that can be said of any of us is that we are a servant. And it's what Paul chooses to use in addressing himself to the church at Philippi. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. So we move from the author now to the audience. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So he's writing to the saints that are at Philippi. Now, the word saint there comes from the Greek word hagios, which is where we get the word holy. And something that is holy or hagios in the Greek is something that is separated and dedicated for the exclusive use and property of God. If something is holy, it belongs to God and it is dedicated perfectly to Him. And therefore, if you and I are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says that we are holy. Look at the person next to you. Do they look holy to you? (laughs) Well, listen, if they're in Christ, they belong to Christ. And because you belong to Christ, therefore, you are considered holy. And therefore, you are considered a saint. And that is the definition of a saint. A saint is not someone who is, you know, lived a Christian life and then died and miracles were done in their name and then, a, a, you know, a group of people vote on that. And, you know, that, that, that is what some would consider a saint. But that's not the biblical definition of a saint. The biblical definition of a saint is someone who's in Christ. So therefore, if you're a Christian, then you're a saint. Now listen, take Paul's example and just call yourself a servant. Don't get a business card and write St. John, you know, or something on it, you know. And don't go to your parents and say, I'm a saint. No, no, don't do that because they'll, they'll contend with you, you know. But according to the biblical definition, if you're in Christ, you're a saint. And therefore, Paul says, to those that are saints that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says also to the bishops. The word bishop in the Greek, it comes from the Greek word and it's two words that put together. It's epi and skopos. Epi is upon, the E-P-I, that prefix that means upon. And skopos is where we get the English word scope. So it's someone who is over or upon a scope. They have a scope of order or influence. And it's basically an overseer. Someone who is placed over a scope of responsibility. And so an episkopos, episkopos, would be a pastor or an overseer or an elder he says the bishops, and also the deacons. And a deacon is those that serve. It's the lay people, those that, 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 that are in the trenches, that are serving there in the church. And Paul takes the opportunity to address 
the saints, those that are members of the church, the bishops or the pastors, the overseers, the elders, and also the deacons. And so Paul is speaking to this group of people, the whole church there at Philippi. In verse 2, he gives his common greeting. He says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We always hear this from Paul, don't we? It's common for him to say grace and peace. Grace is the common Greek greeting. They would say karis when they would meet each other. We say hi. You know, they, they would say karis, which means it's just grace. The Hebrew greeting was shalom or peace. They would say peace when they would meet one another. And so Paul takes the Greek greeting of grace and the Hebrew greeting of peace and he puts them together in the common greeting that he gives to all men. He would say grace and peace. Karis and shalom. You've also heard this before. It isn't just a greeting, but it's also the gospel. Grace and peace is the gospel. Because Essentially, what Jesus Christ provided through his death and resurrection was an opportunity to come to God by grace. To receive forgiveness of sins, not based upon what we could do, but based upon the gift of his salvation through the blood of his son, Jesus. And thus we are partakers of this great grace that God gives to us. And because we're partakers of his grace, therefore, we experience his peace Romans chapter 5, it says, verse 1, Therefore we have peace with God because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so the grace of God avails to us the peace of God. And it's always in that order. You cannot experience the peace of God until you have tasted of the grace of God. Paul never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace. And once you've tasted the good grace of God and you've been set free from trying to please God through your merit, through your works, through your energy, through the strength of your devotion or the consistency of your prayer life or how much scripture you read in a day or in a week, when you simply come to God on the terms of grace, it's incredible the peace of God that floods into your life and overtakes your circumstances. Grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now he presents to us the theme as we get into the next few verses here in verse 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You know, that's a very good um, way to pray for other people. Oftentimes, you know, people will come to us and they'll say, would you pray for me, or would you pray for so-and-so? And you could almost start to think like, oh man, I'm overwhelmed. Like, how, how can I pray for all of these people? I would need four hours before I get out the door in the morning. And it's true. If we categorize our prayers into a certain segment of the day, many of the things will go unprayed, you know, un, un uh, whatever, you know, brought to the Lord. But if at the moment you remember, when it comes into your mind, you might be in the middle of a task, Throughout your workday, you might be driving to or from work. You might be walking down a corridor or you might be in the bathroom or something. At any point, no matter where you are or what you're doing, if a person's face or a person's circumstance comes into your mind, just lift it up to the Lord. Whether it's to give thanks for them or to intercede on their behalf or to supplicate, whatever it is, 
Don't be overwhelmed by thinking that unless I'm on my knees and with my hands in the air and my face like a lemon, you know, that God can't hear me. Paul says, no, my prayer for you comes as I remember you and I thank God for you every time I remember you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. Isn't that interesting? He's in prison. And yet he doesn't say making request in the middle of my own trial. He says, no, 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 joy. <clears throat> for your fellowship <clears throat> in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm praying for the work that God is doing in your midst. And then he gets to the theme of why he's writing. He says this, verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus the reason why I pray for you, the reason why I remember you and thank God for you is because I am confident of the fact that God has begun a work within your life and that because he began that work, he is also going to keep that work alive until you are dead or until he returns, until the day of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray for you. I can't tell you how priceless this verse has been to me in my Christian experience. It's, it's very priceless to me, even to this day, but so much more in the early days of my Christian life. When I stumbled upon this verse, it, it was like, it was life to me. Because I remember what it was like to be a Christian in those first months and in those first couple of years. I, I wanted so much to be accepted by the Lord. I could understand his word, and I was willing to embrace his terms, and I wanted so much to be accepted by him. I wanted to please him and do what was right in his sight, but yet I had so many struggles. There, there was such a fight. My flesh was so strong in those early days. And it just seemed like my walk with the Lord was two steps forward and sometimes three steps back. Or, you know, three steps forward and then two steps back. And there was this thing where I, I so wanted the things of God, but yet I was being overcome by the things that were going on in my life. The strength of my flesh, you know. But yet the conviction of the Holy Spirit would still be with me and I would hate the things that I was doing that were contrary to what God wanted within my life. And I would always come back when I'd get before the Lord and I would claim this verse. I would say, you said that you who began a good work in me, that you're going to be faithful to complete it. That you're not going to let me just zip off and, and be lost. That you're going to keep me. Somehow, you're the one that's doing the work and you're going to keep me. I remember whenever something bad would happen. You know, you get into a fender bender or you hit a deer or, you know, something bad. You know, even if you'd get into trouble, you know, these things would, would come upon my life. And my natural response was always that God is angry with me. He's angry. He, he, that's it. He's done with me. He, he, he gave me a chance. He's given me several chances. But now I've just blown it. And now he's done. And, and I would get under that. And my mind would run for miles thinking, well, he's done with me. What, what am I going to do with my life now? But I would always come back to this verse that's there in Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in me is going to be faithful to bring it to completion until the day that Jesus Christ returns or calls me home. And it would bring me back into the realization that it's not about what I do. 
See, I had, and, and still to a great deal, have no understanding of grace. The depths of God's grace and what it means. Forgiveness. The forgiveness that comes through Christ. The sovereignty of Almighty God that all things are in His hand. That somehow... God who holds the whole world in his hand, and yet at the same time, his thoughts towards me singularly, and you singularly, can be more in number than the numbers of sand that are upon the seashore. I I can't get my mind around that. I can't understand acceptance. That somehow God accepts me. That he's there in holiness, so holy is he that he he dwells in inapproachable light. That he said to Moses that no one can see my glory and live. That you would die if I were to show you even the bit of it. But yet somehow he can accept me. And I couldn't understand that. I still can't. I can't understand the patience of God. That he'll forgive me time and time and time again. That he'll still call me and beckon me and reach out with his love and with his grace. I could never understand. I still can't. His kindness. That God would show kindness to someone who's a sinner like me or understand his power. I can never understand any of those things. But I can understand the promise that Paul gives by the Spirit of God where he says that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I can understand that. I don't get it. I don't understand why but I understand the word. And this verse was so helpful to me as a young believer. Now, if this is true, what Paul is saying to us here, what God is essentially promising that he's going to finish the work, if this is true, then that means it is true in every situation that we face and that it's true every single day of our lives. It's true if we're struggling. It's true when we're suffering. It's true if we're doubting the very promise or existence of God. It's true when our hearts are hardened towards the things of God. And it's true when our hearts are soft. It's true when we're being humbled. And it's true when we're being blessed. And it's true if we're facing infirmities in our flesh physically. Or our health is failing or struggling in some way. It's true in every circumstance in life. And Paul believed it in his own life. And it was true for the Philippian church. And it's true for you and I. That he who began a good work in us is going to be faithful to complete it. And if you're a Christian here tonight and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord. and He saved you from your sins and you're in the grip of his grace. And you're not dead. And if he hasn't returned yet. Then this truth belongs to you just as well as it does to anyone else. That he who began a good work is going to complete it. Now, where Paul is going with this is that suffering within your life, trials within your life, tribulations and difficulty are not, listen carefully, they are not an obstacle that you face in your pursuit of the things of God. Neither are they punishment for the things that you have done but rather they're an ingredient in the work that God is doing in you. The tribulation, the trials, the troubles, the infirmities that we face are not an obstacle to our faith, but rather they are an ingredient to our faith in that which God is working. And listen, in the hand of God, that means that those things 
are good. Notice the word there tucked right into the middle of verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work within you. And that means if you're facing difficulty or if you're in the middle of trial or trouble, then that means that that is a good thing in the hand of God within your life because he's working something that's good within you and everything that God does is absolutely good. Paul says in verse 7, even as it is meet or fitting for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart in as much both in my bonds, that is in my imprisonment, And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. And based upon the fact that you are continually in my heart and that you're partakers of my grace and the fruit of my ministry, it is fitting for me to believe that God is doing the same work in you that he is doing in me and that he promises to do unto all his people. In verse 8, the Apostle Paul brings his opening prayer. He says, For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels or the heart of Jesus Christ. And this I pray. And now Paul prays for them. He says that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That you may approve things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. The first thing that Paul asks God to do on behalf of the Philippian church, he says that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now we know the Greek word for love. It's the word agape, the unconditional love of God. And it's true that our love, Christians, it is to be unconditional. The love that we're to have towards people and to express towards them is to be unconditional. But notice how Paul describes the growth of their love. He says that their love would be tempered with knowledge and judgment, or the word is discretion or discernment. That your love would be filled with knowledge and discernment. There's a a, a word that is used in Christian circles. It's called sloppy agape. Have you ever heard that? And sloppy agape is when we just throw all knowledge and all discernment out the window and we just love. Everything is just love. We never say no. We never say anything that's cutting. We never say anything harsh. We never say anything that will make someone feel uncomfortable or do anything that would bother someone or or make them feel uneasy because that's just not loving. And we want to love and love. God is love and love is of God and everything that love. And it just becomes this big sloppy mess of love. But Paul says that love that doesn't have knowledge and that doesn't have discretion is a half love. It's not a full love. It's not real love. I think of of Jesus there in Mark chapter 10 when he was talking to the rich young ruler. And Jesus was calling the rich young ruler to himself. And and you know the, the story. He says, the rich young ruler comes and he says, what must I do that I might work the works of God? And Jesus says, keep the law, essentially. And he says, which laws? And Jesus names the first six commandments. And he says, ha, I've done all these things for my youth. I'm in. I'm good. I'm keeping the law. And Jesus said, one thing you lack. He said, go sell what you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And it says that the man went away sad because he had great possessions. 
But it says something very interesting in that verse. It says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now let me ask you, was the love that Jesus was giving to him a half love? Was it a cheap love? Was it sloppy agape? No, it was sincere. It was the deepest, richest, most real love that could exist in all of the universe. And yet Jesus said something to him that cut his heart, that offended him, and that caused him to walk away. And Jesus didn't chase after him and say, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Wait, We can repackage this statement and we can say it in a way that's a little bit more seeker sensitive. You know, he didn't do that. It says that he looked at him, he loved him, and he let him go. And sometimes love, if it's real love, has to say no. Sometimes real love has to say something that hurts. Sometimes real love has to let someone go or cut someone off or stop catering to, to their you know, constant whatever it is that they're trying to get from you. And sometimes if we cave in to the whims and the desires of someone, everything that they want in the name of love, we're actually not loving them. And so Paul prays for them. He says that your love may abound more and more, but in knowledge and in all discernment. Then he prays in verse 10 that you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may approve. In other words, that you would hold a very high standard for what you allow. It's interesting, as you look around the church of Jesus Christ today, the standard of what Christians allow is getting lower and lower. The standard of both what they do and produce and the standard of what they allow is getting lower and lower. But Paul says that you would approve or allow the things that are excellent, that you would have a mind and a heart to be excellent. And then, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. The word sincere there, it's a word that means without wax. When a sculptor would make something out of clay or cut something out of marble or stone, they would make these intricate and ornate objects to be sold in the marketplace. But after finishing their their work, they would see that they were filled with imperfections. Sometimes there would be cracks in the clay or imperfections in the marble or in the stone that was being chiseled. And so what they would do is they would take little pieces of the clay or pieces of the marble or pieces of the stone and they would mix it with a wax. And then they would melt the wax and make it mushy and they would press it into the imperfections to give it the appearance as though it was perfect. And then they would bring these things to market and they would sell them. And these people would think that they were buying this incredibly perfect piece and they would bring it home and yet the sun would then begin to beat upon it in the hot Mediterranean summers. And the wax would begin to melt and drip out of the cracks and the people would realize, oh, okay, there's the imperfections, there's what it is. And what Paul is saying when he's praying that they would be sincere is that he's saying that you would be without wax, that you would not be hypocrites, That you wouldn't come into the church or into the presence of other people and put on this facade as though you're perfect. Hiding all your imperfections and making like you have everything together in your home and everything all together in your marriage and everything all together in your service to the Lord and that you're in perfect standing at your workplace and that everything about you is just perfect. Paul says, that's just not real. And he says that you would be without, without wax, that there would be a sincerity, that what you are on the inside, would be the same thing that you are on the outside when you're with other people. But then he qualifies that by saying also that you would be sincere 
and without offense. In other words, there, yes, you are to be who you are. But if you are a jerk, then don't be that. Let God change you. That you would be sincere. That you wouldn't just walk around and say, well, this is just the way I am. I'm very forward and forthright and outspoken and I say what's on my mind. Well, no, 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 no. Listen, that you would be sincere. Yes, Paul doesn't want you to be fake, but he also wants you to be without offense. So if there is something that's in you that is an offense, then repent of it. Get it right with the Lord. Be sincere. Be who you are. Don't feel like you have to be perfect or talk perfect or dress perfect or that everything has to be perfect. But don't go out of your way to be offensive or in the name of sincerity, let all your sin just kind of hang out there to be a stumbling block for someone else. That's what offense means, to stumble someone else. You wouldn't lay a stumbling stone in front of them. And then in verse 11, he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the praise and the glory of God. That you would bring forth fruit within your life and the fruit of the Holy Spirit that's listed there in Galatians 5.22 can only come as you and I continually yield our lives into the hand of Christ. And as we allow Jesus Christ to just change our lives, renew our minds, teach us and conform us into the image of His Son, the fruit of righteousness will grow out of our lives just like a baby grows in the womb. It will happen so supernaturally, naturally. And our lives will begin to carry forth His his image, bring forth His aroma, and there will just be a fruitfulness that comes out of us, out of our lives. And so this is Paul's prayer for them. And next week as we Uh, continue in chapter 1, we'll begin looking at Paul's trial, Paul's personal season of tribulation uh, as God is is using him and and bringing him uh, through this thing and using his trial to minister and speak to the believers there in Philippi. Now, as as we close, I just want to give you one final thought. And I know that some of you are going, oh, goodness. The hope of the Christian life, that is our hope as those that are believers in Christ, is not that God would bring us to a place of having an easy life or a place where we're prospered or where everything in our lives is just continual bliss or that we would be in a place of perfect health or that our lives would be considered successful. That's not the hope of the Christian life. Because, listen, even if you attained that, let's say you could have your ideal earthly situation right now, whatever that is for you. Even if you could attain it, it wouldn't last. See, you know, this past week, um, I went with my father and my brother. We went to the New York City Auto Show. And it's huge, and it's magnificent. And the things you see, I'm not a car guy. You know, I really don't care that much, you know. But some of the things you see there are very impressive, you know, because they bring out the cream of the crop. You see the concept cars, the things that are going to come out in 10 years and that run on nothing, you know, and all the rest, but still go 1,000 miles an hour, and they fly. And, you know, you see all of, all, all of this stuff. And, and, as, and as I was sitting there, and I'm just kind of watching, you know, watching everybody look at these things, and I'm watching the whole thing. And all that kept going on in my mind as as I'm looking at all this is this, that where it will be is what it is now. Where it will be is what it is now. That is, where is all of this going to end up someday? 
in a junkyard. Every single piece of shiny metal that is there, every piece of polished plastic is going to end up in a junkyard. And therefore, in reality, that's what it is now. Because if you can't keep it, and if it doesn't last forever, then what good is it even in the, in, in the, in the, in the time now? It's worth nothing. The only thing that's really worth anything is something that lasts forever. And so therefore, no matter what, even if it's the circumstances of your life, let's say tonight you're, you're struggling in your health. And let's say God gives you your healing. And God brings that perfect health to you. Guess what? That health is going to be followed by sickness. Eventually, in some way, you're going to be sick again. And so therefore, the hope of the Christian life isn't the healing. Let's say God does prosper you financially and he answers your prayer to bring financial stability to you. Well, he may do that, and you may enjoy it for a season, but at some point, the moth is going to eat, the rust is going to corrupt, and what you have will not last. And so therefore, none of those things are the hope of the Christian life. The hope of the Christian life is to have eternal life through the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the Christian life. And when you have that, You can have joy regardless of the circumstances that surround your situation presently. Let's say that you're trusting God for a healing and you get it. Or that financial blessing and stability and it comes. You're going to lose those things eventually. But if Jesus Christ and the eternal life that you have through him is your life, then, then you'll have the ability to have joy. Because we are promised tribulation in this world. We're going to have troubles. We're going to have trials. And the joy of the Christian life is that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that means that the dire day or the dark circumstance is a part of what God is doing within your life to prepare you for the next gazillion years. And when you realize that, you can have joy. God is powerful enough to heal you right now. Did you know that? He could heal you right now. He could turn your circumstances this very second, and every problem that you have, he could just fix it immediately in the twinkling of an eye. He could fix the marital problem that you're having just like that. It could be over. It could be done. You're saying, Lord, please. He could give you the Mega Millions jackpot. He could lift away the depression. He could do it right now. And listen, it's not because he, it's not that he, he, he doesn't have the power. It's not that he's too busy. You know, sometimes we think, well, God's got this like to-do list and I'm way down here and eventually he'll get to, to me and then he'll answer the thing that I've been. No, 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 no. He could do it right now. His thoughts are more in number than the sand that's on the seashore. He's concerned for you. But listen. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, whatever circumstance that you're in right now, it's perfect according to what you need, both now and in the future. He never makes a bad decision. He always does what is perfect and right for his people. And joy comes, listen carefully and we're close, joy comes in the embracing of those circumstances and situations and accepting them to be his will, and believing that it's all for a purpose. What he desires for us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. We ask that you would help us to embrace 
the things that you have put within our lives right now and to believe that you're doing all things according to what is good and right for us. And we pray, Lord, that in our tribulation, in our trials, in our suffering, that you would be able to use us as you used Paul to be a testament to your goodness and to believe in your power and your love. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, as we move through this epistle, that you would make those adjustments within us and that you would help us to comprehend and understand that you work all things together for good. Please, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We pray that you would be with us, that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.